Chapter Twenty One, Part B, of Travels in West Africa. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Travels in West Africa, by Mary H. Kingsley. Chapter Twenty One, Part B, Trade and Labor in West Africa. English men of war on the West African station have, like other vessels, to take them on to save the white crew, and they pay the crew boys the same as they pay the white men, i.e. £4.10 a month with rations. Needless to say, men of war are popular, although service on board them cuts our friend off from almost every chance of stealing chickens and other things of which I may not speak, as Herodotus would say. I do not know the manner in which men of war pay off the crew boy, but I think in hard cash. In the circles of society I most mix with on the coast, the mercantile marine and the trading, he is always paid in goods, in cloth, gin, guns, tobacco, gunpowder, etc., with little concessions to his individual fancy in the matter, for each of these articles has a known value, and just as one of our coins can be changed, so you can get here a change for a gun or any other trade article. The crew boy much prefers being paid off in goods. I well remember an exquisite scene between Captain and King Coffee of the Crew Coast when the subject of engaging boys was being shouted over one voyage out. The captain at that time thought I was a WWTAA, and ostentatiously wanted Coffee to let him pay off the boys he was engaging to work the ship in money and not in gin and gunpowder. King Coffee's face was a study. If Captain Blank, whom we knew of old, had stood on his head and turned bright blue all over with yellow spots before his eyes, it would not have been anything like such a shock to his majesty. "'What for good him ting, Cappy?' he said, interrogation and astonishment ringing in every word. "'What for good him ting for we country, Cappy? I suppose you give gin, tobacco, gun, he be fit for trade, but money?' Here his majesty's feelings flew ahead of the royal command of language, great as that was, and he expectorated with profound feeling and expression. Captain Blank's expressive countenance was the battleground of despair and grief at being thus forced to have anything to do with a traffic on popular and missionary circles. He, however, controlled his feelings sufficiently to carefully arrange the due amount of each article to be paid, and the affair was settled. The somewhat cumbrous wage the crew-boy gets at the end of his term of service, minus those things he has had, on account and plus those things he has found, is certainly a source of great worry to our friend. He obtains a box from the carpenter of the factory, or buys a tin one, and puts therein his tobacco and small things, and then he buys a padlock and locks his box of treasure up, hanging the key with his other jujus round his neck, and then he has peace regarding this section of his belongings. Peace at present, for the day must sometime dawn, when an experimental genius shall arise among his fellow countrymen, who will try and see if one key will not open two locks. When this possibility becomes known, I can foresee nothing for the crew-boy but nervous breakdown. For even now, with his mind at rest regarding the things in his box, he lives in a state of constant anxiety about those out of it, which have to line the deck during the return voyage to his home." 
He has to keep a vigilant eye on them by day, and sleep spread out over them by night for fear of his companions stealing them. Why he should take all this trouble about his things on his voyage home I can't make out, if what is currently reported is true, that all the wages earned by the working boys become the property of the elders of his tribe when he returns to them. I myself rather doubt if this is the case, but expect there is a very heavy tax levied on them, for your crew boy is very much a married man, and the elders of his tribe have to support and protect his wives and families when he is away at work, and I should not wonder if the law was that these said families and wives revert to the state if the boy fails to return within something like his appointed time. There must be something besides nostalgia to account for the dreadful worry and apprehension shown by a detained crew-boy. I am sure the tax is heavily taken in cloth, for the boys told me that if it were made up into garments for themselves they did not have to part with it on their return. Needless to say, this makes our friend turn his attention to needlework during his return voyage, and many a time I have seen the main deck looking as if it had been taken possession of by a demoniac old Dorcas working party. Strangely, little is known of the laws and language of these crewmen, considering how close the association is between them and the whites. This arises, I think, not from the difficulty of learning their language, but from the ease and fluency with which they speak their version of our own, crew English, or trade English, as it is called and it is therefore unnecessary for a hot and wearied white man to learn crew mouth what particularly makes me think this is the case is that i have picked up a little of it and i found that i could make a crewman understand what i was driving at with this and my small stock of basa mouth and timne on occasions when i wished to say something to him i did not want generally understood but the main points regarding crewmen are well enough known by old coasters their willingness to work if well fed, and their habit of engaging for twelve-month terms of work and then returning to we country. A trader who is satisfied with a boy gives him, when he leaves, a bit of paper telling the captain of any vessel that he will pay the boy's passage to his factory again when he is willing to come. The period that a boy remains in his beloved we country seems to be until his allowance of his own earnings is expended, one can picture to oneself some sad partings in that far-away dark land. "'My loves,' says the crew-boy to his families, his voice heavy with tears, "'I must go. There is no more cloth, I have nothing between me and an easily shocked world, but this decayed filament of cotton.' And then his families weep with him, or what is more likely, but not so literary, expectorate with emotion, and he tears himself away from them, and comes on board the passing steamer, in the uniform of Gonjadin, nothing much before, and rather less than half of that behind, and goes down coast on the strength of the little bit of paper from his white master which he has carefully treasured, and works like a nigger in the good sense of the term for another spell to earn more goods for his home folk. Those boys who are first starting on travelling to work, and those without books, have no difficulty in getting passages on the steamers, for a captain is glad to get as many on board as he can, being sure to get their passage money and a premium for them, so great is the demand for crew labour. But even this help to working the west coast has been much interfered with of late years by the action of the French government in imposing a tax 
per head on all laborers leaving their ports on the Ivory Coast. This tax, I believe, is now removed or much reduced. But as for the Liberian Republic, it simply gets its revenue in an utterly unjustifiable way out of taxing the crewmen who ship as laborers. The crewmen are no property of theirs, and they dare not interfere with them on shore, but owing to that little transaction in the celebrated rubber monopoly, the Liberians became possessed of some ready cash, which, with great foresight, they invested in two little gunboats which enabled them to enforce their tax on the crewmen in their small canoes. I do not feel so sympathetic with the crewmen or their employers in this matter as I should, for the crewmen are silly hens not to go and wipe out Liberia on shore, and the white men are silly hens not to, but I had better leave that opinion unexpressed. The power of managing crew boys is a great accomplishment for anyone working the West Coast. One man will get twenty per cent more work out of his staff and always have them cheerful, fit, and ready, while another will get very little out of the same set of men except vexation to himself and accidents to his goods. But this very necessary and important factor in trade is not to be taught with ink. Some men fall into the proper way of managing the boys very quickly. Others may have years of experience and yet fail to learn it. The rule is, make them respect you, and make them like you, and then the thing is done. But first, dealing with a crew boy with all his good points is very trying work, and they give the new hand an awful time of it, while they are experimenting on him to see how far they can do him. They do this very cleverly, but short-sightedly, more Africano, for they spoil the tempers of half the white men whom they have to deal with. It is not necessary to treat them brutally, in fact it does not pay to do so, but it is necessary to treat them severely, to keep a steady hand over them. Never let them become familiar, never let them see you have made a mistake. When you make a mistake in giving them an order, let it be understood that that way of doing a thing is a peculiarly artful dodge of your own, and if it fails, that it is their fault. They will quite realize this if it is properly managed. I speak from experience, for example. Once, owing to the superior sex being on its back with fever and sending its temperature up with worrying about getting some ebony logs off to a bothering wretch of a river steamer that must needs come yelling along for cargo just then, I said, you leave it to me and I'll get it shipped all right, and proceeded with the help of three crew boys to raft that ebony off. I saw as soon as I had embarked on the affair from the crew boy's manner I was down the wrong path, but how or why I did not see until a neat arrangement of ebony billets tied together with tie-tie was in the water. Then I saw that I had constructed an excellent-sounding apparatus for finding out the depth of water in the river, and that ebony had an affinity for the bottom of water, not for the top. The situation was a trying one, and the way the captain of the vessel kept dancing about his deck, saying things in a foreign tongue, but quite comprehensible, was distracting, but I did not devote myself to giving him the information he asked for, as to what particular kind of idiot I was, because he was neither a mad doctor nor an ethnologist, and had no right to the information. But I put a raft on the line of a very light wood we had a big store of, and this held up the ebony, and the current carried it down to the steamer all right. Then we hauled the line home, and sent him some more in the patent plan, but just to hurry up, you understand, and not delay the ship, 
a deadly crime some of that ebony went off in a canoe and all ended happily and the crew boys regarded themselves as having been the spectators of another manifestation of white intelligence in defence of the captain's observations i must say he could not see me because i was deploying behind a woodstack nevertheless i do not mean to say this method of shipping ebony is a good one i shall not try it again in a hurry and the situation cannot be pulled through unless you have as allah gave me a very swift current and although when the thing went well i did say things from behind the woodstack to the captain i did not feel justified in accepting his apologetic invitation to come on board and have a drink my experiences with crew boys would if written in full make an excellent manual for a newcomer but they are too lengthy for this chapter my first experience with them on a small bush journey aged me very much and ever since i have shirked chaperoning crew boys about the west african bush among ticklish tempered native gentlemen and their forward hussies of wives i have always admired men for their strength their courage their enterprise their unceasing struggle for the beyond the something else but not until i had to deal with crewmen did i realize the vastness to which this latter characteristic of theirs could attain one might have been excused for thinking that a man without rates and taxes without pockets and without the manifold want creating culture of modern european civilization and education would necessarily have been bounded to some extent in his desires but one would have been wrong, profoundly wrong, in so thinking, for the crewman yearns after, and duns for as many things for his body as the lamented Faustus did for his soul, and away among the apes this interesting creature would have to go, at once, if the wanting of little were a crucial test, for the determination of the family termed by the scientific world the hominidae. Later, when I got to know the crewmen well, I learned that they desired not only the vast majority of the articles that they saw, but did more, obtained them, at all events, some of them, without asking me for them, such commodities, for example, as fowls, palm-wine, old tins and bottles, and other gentlemen's wives were never safe. One of that first gang of boys showed self-help to such a remarkable degree that I christened him Smiles. His name u-b-d-d being both protracted and improper called for change of some sort but even this brought no comfort to one still hampered with conventional ideas regarding property and frequent roll-calls were found necessary so that the crimes of my friend smiles and his fellows might not accumulate to an unimaginable extent this used to be the sort of thing whether netto rash lib he lib for drunk massa where them smiles he lived for town for steel massa where them black my misery but i draw a veil over the confessional for there is simply no artistic reticence about your crewman when he is telling the truth or otherwise regarding a fellow-creature after accumulating with this gang enough experience to fill a hat remembering always one of the worst things you can do in west africa is to worry yourself i bethought me of the advice i had received from my cousin rose kingley who had successfully ridden through mexico when mexico was having a rather worse revolution than usual to always preserve a firm manner i thought i would try this on those crew boys and said no in place of i wish you would not do that please i can't say it was an immediate success 
during this period we came across a trader's lonely store wherein he had a consignment of red parasols after these appalling objects the souls of my crewmen hungered with a great desire no said i in my severest tone and after buying other things we passed on imagine my horror therefore hours afterwards and miles away to find my precious crew had got a red parasol apiece previous experience quite justified me in thinking that these had been stolen and i pictured to myself my portuguese friends whose territory i was then in commenting upon the incident and reviling me as another instance of how the brutal english go looting through the land i found however i was wrong for the parasols had been dashed my rapacious rascals for top and the last one connected with the affair who deserved pity was the traitor from whom i had believed them stolen it was i not he who suffered for it was the wet season in west africa and those red parasols ran to this day my scientific soul has never been able to account for the vast body of crimson dye those miserable cotton things poured out plentifully drenching myself and their owners the crew boys and everything we associated with that day i am quite prepared to hear that some subsequent wanderer has found a red trail in africa itself like that one so often sees upon the maps when they do i hereby claim that real red trail as mine i confess i like the african on the whole a thing i never expected to do when i went to the coast with the idea that he was a degraded savage cruel brute but that is a trifling error you soon get rid of when you know him the crew boy is decidedly the most likable of all africans that i know wherein his charm lies is difficult to describe and you certainly want the patience of job and a conscience made of stretching leather to deal with a crew boy in the african climate and live in his better manifestations he reminds me of that charming personality the irish peasant for though he lacks the sparkle he is full of humour and is the laziest and the most industrious of mankind he lies and tells the truth in such a hopelessly uncertain manner that you cannot rely on him for either he is ungrateful and faithful to the death honest and thievish all in one and the same specimen of him ingratitude is a crime laid very frequently to the score of all africans but i think unfairly certainly i have never had to complain of it and the crewmen often show gratitude for good treatment in a grand way the way those crew-boys of gallant captain lane helped him work lagos bar and save lives by the dozen from the stranded ships on it and hauled their massa out from among the sharky foam every time he went into it on the lifeboat upsetting would have done credit to deal or norfolk lifeboat men but the secret of their devotion is their personal attachment they do not save people out of surf on abstract moral principles the african at large is not an enthusiast on moral principles and one and all they let nature take its course if they don't feel keen on a man surviving half the african's ingratitude although it may look very bad on paper is really not so very bad for half the time you have been asking him to be grateful to you for doing to or giving him things he does not care a row of pins about i have quite his feelings for example for half the things in civilized countries i am expected to be glad to get oh how nice it must be to be able to get about in cars omnibuses and railway trains again 
Is it? Well, I don't think so, and I do not feel glad over it. Similarly, we will take an African case of ingratitude. A wide friend of mine put himself to an awful lot of trouble to save the life of one of his sub-traders who had had an accident and succeeded. It had been the custom of the man's wife to bring the trader little presents of fowls, etc. From time to time, and some time after the accident, he met the lady and told her he had noticed a falling off in her offerings, and he thought her very ungrateful after what he had done for her husband. She grunted, and the next morning she brought in as a present the most forlorn, skinny, one-and-a-half-feathered chicken you have ever laid eye on, and in answer to the trader's comments she said, Massa, for sure dem der chicken no be tickly good chicken, but for sure dem der man no be tickly good man. They go. They match each other. I have referred at great length to the crewmen because of their importance, and also because they are the natives the white men have more to do with as servants than any other. But methods of getting on with them are not necessarily applicable to dealing with other forms of African laborers such as plantation hands in the Congo Francais, Angola, and Cameroon. In Cameroon the Germans are now using largely the Batanga natives on the plantations, the Dualas, the great trading tribe in Cameroon River, being too lazy to do any heavy work, and they have also tried to import laborers from Togoland. But this attempt was not a success, ending in the revolt of 1894, which lost several white lives. The public work is carried on, as it is in our own colonies, by the criminals in the chain gang. The Germans have had many accusations hurled against them by people of their own nationality, but on the whole these atrocities have been much exaggerated and only half understood, and certainly have not amounted to anything like the things that have gone on in the philanthropic Congo Free State. The food given out by the German government is the best government rations given on the whole west coast. When they have allowed me to have some of their native employees, as when I was up Cameroon Mountain, for example, I bought rations from the government stores for them, and was much struck by the soundness and good quality of both rice and beef, and the rations they gave out to those Dahomeans, or Togolanders, who revolted with so much more than they could or cared to eat, that they used to sell much of it to the Duallas in Belltown. This is not open to the criticism that the stuff was too bad for the Togolanders to eat, as was once said to me by a philanthropic German who had never been to the coast, because the Duallas are a rich tribe, perfectly free traders in the matter, able to go to the river factories and buy provisions there had they wished to, and so would not have bought the government rations unless they were worth having. The great point that has brought the Germans into disrepute with the natives employed by them is their military spirit, which gives rise to a desire to regulate everything, and that other attribute of the military spirit, nagging. You should never nag an African. It only makes him bothered and then sulky, and when he's sulky he lie down and die despite you. But in spite of the Germans being overgiven to this unpleasant habit of military regularity and so on, the natives from the Crew coast and from Bassa and the French Ivory coast return to them time after time for spells of work, so there must be grave exaggeration regarding their bad treatment, for these natives are perfectly free in the matter. The French use Loango boys for factory hands, and these people are very bright and intelligent, 
but as Impongwe, who knew them well, said, they are much too likely to be devils to be good too much, and are undoubtedly given to poisoning, which is an unpleasant habit in a house-servant. Their military force are composed of Senegalese laptot, very fine fierce fellows, superiors, I believe, as fighting men to our houses, and very devoted to and well treated by their French officers. That the Frenchman does not know how to push trade in his possessions, the trade returns, with the balance all on the wrong side, clearly show, still he does know how to get possession of Africa better than we do, and this means he knows how to deal with the natives. The building up of Congo Frances, for example, has not cost one-third of the human lives, black or white, than an equivalent quantity of Congo Belge has, nor one-third of the expense of Uganda or Sierra Leone. It is customary in England to dwell on the commercial failure, and deduce from it the erroneous conclusion that France will soon leave it off when she finds it does not pay. This is an error, because commercial success, the making, the thing pay, is not the French ideal in the affair. It is our own, and I am the last person to say our ideal is wrong, but it is not the French ideal, and I am the last person to say France is wrong either. There may exist half a hundred or more right reasons for doing anything, and the reasons France has for her energetic policy in Africa are sound ones, for they are the employment of her martial spirits, where their activity will not endanger the state, the stowing of these spirits in Paris having been found to be about as advisable as stowing over-proof spirits and gunpowder in a living-room, with plenty of lighted lucifers blazing round. And her other reason is the top opportunity African enterprise affords for sound military training. You will often hear in England regarding French annexation in Africa. Oh, let her have the deadly hole, and much good may do her. France knows very well what good it will do her, and she will certainly take all she is allowed to get quietly, as a sop for her quietness regarding Egypt, and she will cheerfully fight you for the rest, small blame to her. She knows Africa is a superb training ground for her officers. Sham fights and autumn maneuvers have a certain value in the formation of a fighting army, but the whole of these parlor games put together in a ten-year lump are not to be compared to one month's work at real war, to fit an army for its real work, and France knows well the real work will come again some day, not far off for her army. How soon it comes she little cares, for she has no ideal of peace before her, never has had, never will have, and the next time she tries conclusions with one of us Teutonic nations, she will be armed with men who have learned their trade well on the burning sands of Senegal, and they will take a lot of beating. We do not require Africa as a training ground for our army. India is as magnificent a military academy as any nation requires but we do require all the Africa we can get, west, east, and south, for a market, and it is here we clash with France, for France not only does not develop the trade of her colonies for her own profit, but stamps trade at large out by her preferential tariffs, etc., so that we cannot go into her colonies and trade freely as she and Germany can come into ours. We can go into her colonies and do business with French goods, and this is done, but French goods are not so suitable from their make, nor capable of being sold at a sufficient profit to make a big trade. But France throws few obstacles, if any, in the matter of plantation enterprise. 
Still, this enterprise, being so hampered by the dearth of good labor, is not at the present time highly remunerative in Africa. FOREIGN LABOR Several important authorities have advocated the importation of foreign labor into Africa. This seems to me to be a fatal error for several reasons. For one thing, experience has by now fully demonstrated that the West Coast climate is bad for men not native to it, whether those men be white, black, or yellow. The United Presbyterian Mission, who work in Old Calabar, was founded with the intention of inaugurating a mission which, after the white men had established it, was to be carried on by educated Christian blacks from Jamaica, where this mission had long been established and flourished. But it was found that these men, although primarily Africans, had by their deportation from Africa in the course, in some cases of only one generation, lost the power of resistance to the deadly malarial climate their forefathers possessed, and so the mission is now carried on by whites, not that these good people have a greater resistance to the fever than the Jamaica Christians, but because they are more devoted to the evangelization of the African, and what black assistance they receive comes, with the exception of Mrs. Fuller, from a few educated ethics of Calabar. The Congo Free State have imported as laborers both West Indian Negroes, principally Barbadians and Chinamen. In both cases the mortality has been terrible, more than the white mortality which competent authorities put down for the Congo at seventy-seven per cent, and the experiment has therefore failed. It may be said that much of this mortality has arisen from the way in which these laborers have been treated in the free state, but that this is not entirely the case is demonstrated by the case of the enemies in Congo Frances who are well treated. These enemies are the political prisoners arising from the French occupation of Tonkin, and the mortality among one gang of one hundred of them who were employed to make the path through swampy ground from Glass to Libreville, a distance of two and a half miles, was seventy, and this, although the swamp was nothing particularly bad as swamps go, and was swept by sea air the whole way. Even had the experiment of imported labor been successful for the time being, I hold it would be a grave error to import labor into Africa, for this reason that Africa possesses in herself the most magnificent mass of labor material in the whole world, and surely if her children could build up as they have the prosperity and trade of the Americas, she should, under proper guidance and good management, be able to build up her own. But good guidance and proper management are the things that are wanted, and are wanting. It is impossible to go into this complicated question fully here, and I will merely ask unprejudiced people who do not agree with me whether they do not think that as so much has been done with one African tribe, the crewmen, a tribe possessing no material difference in make of mind or body from hundreds of other tribes, but which have merely been trained by white men in a different way from other tribes, that there is room for great hope in the native labor supply, and would not a very hopeful outlook for West Africa regarding the labor question be possible, if a regime of common sense were substituted for our present one? This is, of course, the missionary question 
a question which I feel it is hopeless to attempt to speak of without being gravely misunderstood, and which I therefore would willingly shirk mentioning, but I am convinced that the future of Africa is not to be dissociated from the future of its natives, by the importation of yellow races or Hindus, and the missionary question is not to be dissociated from the future of the African natives, and so the subject must be touched on, and I preface my remarks by stating that I have a profound personal esteem for several missionaries. Naturally, for it is impossible to know such men and women as Mr. and Mrs. Dennis Kemp of the Gold Coast, Messrs. and M. Jacot and Messrs. and Monsieur Forget and Monsieur Gacon and Dr. Nassau of Gaboon and many others without recognizing at once the beauty of their natures and the nobility of their intentions. Indeed, taken as a whole, the missionaries must be regarded as superbly brave, noble-minded men who go and risk their own lives, and often those of their wives and children, and definitely sacrifice their personal comfort and safety to do what from their point of view is their simple duty. But it is their methods of working that have produced in West Africa the results which all truly interested in West Africa must deplore and one is bound to make an admission that goes against one's insular prejudice, that the Protestant English missionaries have had most to do with rendering the African useless. The bad effects that have arisen from their teaching have come primarily from the failure of the missionary to recognize the difference between the African and themselves as being a difference not of degree but of kind. I am aware that they are supported in this side by several eminent ethnologists, but still there are a large number of anatomical facts that point the other way, and a far larger number still relating to mental attributes, and I feel certain that a black man is no more an undeveloped white man than a rabbit is an undeveloped hare, and the mental difference between the two races is very similar to that between men and women among ourselves. A great woman, either mentally or physically, will excel an indifferent man, but no woman ever equals a really great man. The missionary to the African has done what my father found them doing to the Polynesians, regarding the native minds as so many jugs only requiring to be emptied of the stuff which is in them, and refilled with the particular form of dogma he is engaged in teaching, in order to make them the equals of the white races. This form of procedure works in very various ways. It eliminates those parts of the native fetish that were a wholesome restraint on the African. The children in the mission school are, be it granted, better than the children outside it in some ways. They display great aptitude for learning anything that comes in their way. But there is a great difference between white and black children. The black child is a very solemn thing. It comes into the world in large quantities, and looks upon it with its great sad eyes, as if it were weighing carefully the question whether or no it is a fit place for a respectable soul to abide in. Four times in ten it decides that it is not, and dies. If, however, it decides to stay, it passes between two and three years in a grim and profound study, occasionally emitting howls which end suddenly in a sob, whine it never does. At the end of this period it takes to spoon food, walks about, and makes itself handy to its mother, or goes into the mission school. If it remains in the native state it has no toys of a frivolous nature. 
a little hoe or a little calabash are considered better training if it goes into the school it picks up with astonishing rapidity the lessons taught it there giving rise to hopes for its future which are only too frequently disappointed in a few years time it is not until he reaches years of indiscretion that the african becomes joyful but when he attains this age he always does cheer up considerably and then whatever his previous training may have been he takes to what mr kipling calls boot with great avidity and of this he consumes an enormous quantity for the next sixteen years barring accidents he rips he rips carefully terrified by his many fetish restrictions if he is a pagan but if he is in that partially converted state you usually find him in when trouble has been taken with his soul then he rips unrestrained it is most unfair to describe africans in this state as converted either in missionary reports or in attacks on them they are not converted in the least a really converted african is a very beautiful form of christian but those africans who are the chief mainstay of missionary reports and who afford such material for the scoffer thereat have merely had the restraint of fear removed from their minds in the mission schools without the greater restraint of love being put in its place the missionary made man is the curse of the coast and you find him in european clothes and without all the way down from sierra leone to loanda the pagans despise him the whites hate him still he thinks enough of himself to keep him comfortable his conceit is marvellous nothing equals it except perhaps that of the individual rife among us which the saturday review once aptly described as the suburban agnostic and the missionary man is very much like the suburban agnostic in his religious method after a period of mission school life he returns to his country fashion and deals with the fetish connected with it very much in the same way as the suburban agnostic deals with his religion i e he removes from it all the inconvenient portions shouldn't wonder if there might be something in the idea of the immortality of the soul and a future heaven you know but as for hell my dear sir that's rank superstition no one believes in it now and as for sabbath-keeping and food restrictions what utter rubbish for enlightened people so the backsliding african deals with his country fashion ideas he eliminates from them the idea of immediate retribution etc and keeps the polygamy and the dances and all the lazy hazy-minded native ways the education he has received at the mission school in reading and writing fits him for a commercial career and as every african is a born trader he embarks on it and there are pretty goings-on on the west coast he frequently sets up in business for himself on the southwest coast he usually becomes a sub-trader to one of the great english french or german firms on both coasts he gets himself disliked and brings down opprobrium on all black traders expressed in language more powerful than select this wholesale denunciation of black traders is unfair because there are many perfectly straight trading natives still the majority are recruited from missionary school failures and are utterly bad post hoc non propter hoc is an excellent maxim but one that never seems to enter the missionary head down here highly disgusted and pained at his pupils goings on but absolutely convinced of the excellence of his own methods of instruction and the spiritual equality irrespective of colour of christians 
the missionary rises up and says things one can understand him saying about the bad influence of the white traders, stating that they lure the pupils from the fold to destruction. These things are nevertheless not true. Then the white trader hears them and gets his back up and says things about the effect of missionary training on the African, which are true but harsh, because it is not the missionary's intent to turn out skillful forgers and unmitigated liars, although they practically do so. My share when I drop in on this state of mutual recrimination is to get myself into hot water with both parties. The missionary thinks me misguided for regarding the African's goings-on as part of the make of the man, and the trader regards me as a soft-headed idiot when I state that it is not the missionary's individual blame that a lamb recently required from the fold has gone down the primrose path with the trust or the rum. Shade of Sir John Falstaff! What a life this is! The two things to which the missionary himself ascribes his want of success are polygamy and the liquor traffic. Now polygamy is, like most other subjects, a difficult thing to form a just opinion on, if before forming the opinion you take a careful study of the facts bearing on the case. It is therefore advisable, if you wish to produce an opinion generally acceptable in civilized circles, to follow the usual recipe for making opinions. Just take a prejudice of your own, and mix it up with a so-called opinion of that class of people who go in for that sort of prejudice, too. I have got myself so entangled with facts that I cannot follow this plan, and therefore am compelled to think polygamy for the Africans is not an unmixed evil, and that at the present culture level of the African it is not to be eradicated. This arises from two reasons. The first is that it is perfectly impossible for one African woman to do the work of the house, prepare the food, fetch water, cultivate the plantations, and look after the children attributed to one man. She might do it if she had the work in her of an English or Irish charwoman, but she has not, and a whole village full of African women do not do the work in a week that one of these will do in a day. Then, too, the African lady is quite indifferent as to what extent her good man may flirt with other ladies, so long only as he does not go and give them more cloth and beads than he gives her. And the second reason for polygamy lies in the custom well known to ethnologists, and so widely diffused that one might say it was constant throughout all African tribes, only there are so many of them whose domestic relationships have not been carefully observed. As regards the drink traffic, no one seems inclined to speak the truth about it in West Africa, and what I say I must be understood to say only about West Africa, because I do not like to form opinions without having had opportunities for personal observation, and the only part of Africa I have had these opportunities in has been from Sierra Leone to Angola, and the reports from South Africa show that an entirely different and a most unhealthy state of affairs exists there from its invasion by mixed European nationalities, with individuals of a low type, greedy for wealth. West African conditions are no more like South African conditions than they are like Indian. The missionary party on the whole have gravely exaggerated both the evil and the extent of the liquor traffic in West Africa. 
I make an exception in favor of the late superintendent of the Wesleyan Mission on the Gold Coast, the Reverend Dennis Kemp, who had enough courage and truth in him to stand up at a public meeting in Liverpool on July 2nd, 1896, and record it as his opinion that the natives of the Gold Coast were remarkably abstemious, but spirits were, he believed, of no benefit to the natives, and they would be better without them. I have quoted the whole of the remark, as it is never fair to quote half a man says, on any subject, but I do not agree with the latter half of it, and the Gold Coast natives are not any more abstemious, if so much so, as other tribes on the coast. I have elsewhere attempted to show that the drink traffic is by no means the most important factor in the mission failure on the West Coast, but that it has been used in an unjustifiable way by the missionary party because they know the cry against alcohol is at present a popular one in england and it has also the advantage of making the subscribers at home regard the african as an innocent creature who is led away by bad white men and therefore still more interesting and more worthy and in more need of subscriptions than ever i should rather like to see the african lady or gentleman who could be led away all the leading away I have seen on the coast has been the other way about. I do not say every missionary on the West Coast who makes untrue statements on this subject is an original liar. He is usually only following his leaders and repeating their observations without going into the evidence around him. And the missionary public in England and Scotland are largely to blame for their perpetual thirst for thrilling details of the amount of baptisms and experiences among the people they pay other people to risk their lives to convert or for thrilling details of the difficulties these said emissaries have to contend with as for the general public who swallow the statements i think they are prone from the evidence of the evils they see round them directly arising from drink to accept as true without bothering themselves with calm investigation statements of a like effect regarding other people. I have no hesitation in saying that in the whole of West Africa, in one week, there is not one quarter the amount of drunkenness you can see any Saturday night you choose in a couple of hours in the Vauxhall Road. And you will not find, in a whole year's investigation on the coast, one seventieth part of the evil, degradation, and premature decay you can see any afternoon you choose to take a walk in the more densely populated parts of any of our own towns. I own the whole affair is no business of mine, for I have no financial interest in the liquor traffic whatsoever, but I hate the preying upon emotional sympathy by misrepresentation, and I grieve to see thousands of pounds wasted that are bitterly needed by our own cold-starving poor. I do not regard the money as wasted because it goes to the African, but because such an immense percentage of it does no good and much harm to him. It is customary to refer to the spirits sent out to West Africa as poisonous and as raw alcohol. It is neither. I give an analysis of a bottle of Van Hoytema's trade gin, which I obtained to satisfy my own curiosity on the point. Analysis of Sample of Trade Gin With reference to the bottle of the above, I have the honor to report as follows. It contains Absolute alcohol, 39.35%, acidity expressed as acetic acid, 
0.0068%. Ethers expressed as acetic acid, 0.021%. Aldehydes, present in small quantity. Forferol, ditto, ditto. Higher alcohols, ditto, ditto. The only alcohol that can be estimated quantitatively is ethyl alcohol. There is no methyl, and the higher alcohols, as shown by Savile methods, only exist in traces. The spirit is flavored by more than one essential oil, and apparently oil of juniper is one of these oils. The liquid contains no sugar, and leaves but a small extract. In my opinion, the liquid essentially consists of a pure distilled spirit flavored with essential oils. Of course, no attempt to identify these oils in the quantity sent, viz. 632 cc, one bottle, was made. The ethers are returned as ethyl acetate, but from fractional distillation, amyl acetate was found to be present. I have the honor to be, etc. Signed, G. H. Robertson, Fellow of the Chemical Society, Associate of the Institute of Chemistry. End of chapter 21 Part B. Trade and Labor in West Africa. Read by Gainde of Bahatrek.com.